In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. So it's important for us not only to teach our sons to honor women, but to teach our women to honor themselves, that they're worthy of that. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we we salute salute you. you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to another episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, and I'm here with Dale Culver. How you doing, man? Doing really good, sir. Doing a little role reversal today, a little opposite day. You are going to interview me. Yes, this is going to be intense. So I'm excited uh, to see what you're going to throw at me and see curveballs. Well, I used to drive those suckers over right field fences all day long. So let's see what happens here. But hey, uh, got we want to remind the guys before we get rolling, guys, write us a review for this podcast that really helps us out in our rankings, or send us a hero story how God has used. Uh, any aspect of our ministry to impact you and those you love. And for you women listening, guys, gals, we would love to hear uh, what's going on in the life and the heart of your man because of our ministry. And we'd love, we love to hear from the wives. I mean, that, that maybe encourages mm-hmm. more than anything. So yeah. that means the guy is taking what he's learning and he's transferring it down to the wife. And so that is super excited for us. For us. And so let us know uh, what's going on in the heart and the life of your husband. We'd love to hear about that. And guys, let me, let's say this. Hey, we are closed for our fall cycle launch of our virtual teams. And these are teams that we're launching all around the country, but they are virtually based on time zones. Those are closed for the fall, and those are starting up here in the first week in October. But if you want to sign up for our program and be a part of the January or winter cycle launch, go to our website, manarena.org. There's a little box on the homepage that says join our program. Does it say join our program or sign up for our program? That's the top, I believe it says that. No, it's a little box. It's in the middle there, the right side. So, guys, you go into that, you sign up, and when you sign up, you are saying, I'm in. I want to be a part of this. It'll ask for your phone number and your email, and we use that to contact you and pull you into our groups. And, and so we've had a little integrity problem with some of our guys not responding to the emails. And so if you sign up, make sure you're responding to the emails and the phone calls. Uh, we have a volunteer force of great national team captains that are excited to lead you and to join you and your progression towards your best version. So guys, make sure we, and I'll, I'll say this. I love our podcast. I love our forum. I I love the books. There's a lot of effort and energy that goes into writing these books. Trust me a lot. But what we see making the difference in men over long term is small groups. Yep. You got to be in a small group. You got to be a part of a group of other men. And if you're a guy like so many listeners podcast and you're not connected to a local church, guys, listen, we are providing a ministry opportunity for you. We are serving it up. So do not neglect that, guys, okay? So anyway, so that being said, I'm just going to leave it there. Go to our website, sign up, and then we're going to talk about something today, Dale. When you're at the website, you'll see a little pop-up. That pop-up is for my brand new book. It's it's never going to be a hard copy book. It's a book that we're offering as a free download. It's over 200 pages long, but it's a very short read. It's called Tell Them What 
great fathers tell their sons and daughters. And you're going to be interviewing me about that book today so that we can get these guys fired up and excited. It is a tremendous, tremendous resource. Uh, it is so well put together. I'm very, very excited about our team or our team has done to put this together. But before we move into that, do you have a man word for us today? Yeah, my man word is tell them. That's no I'm kidding. <laughs> No, oh, but, my uh, gosh. Hold on, hold on. I got to recover from that. Hold on. Okay, okay. All right, go ahead. So, actually, I, I used the word sharing, and I used it in the, the the realm of telling your kids stuff. Sharing your with your kids, um, and this is really motivated out of this book. And, and honestly, guys, I, I had a dad uh, that did share with me stories of... Um, what happened in life uh, with my grandparents, and I, I knew about things, how mom and dad met, and a lot of the things that you put in your book mm-hmm. um, were things that I experienced and a lot of things that I didn't. So, uh, um, yeah, it was really—so, dads, you need to be sharing with your kids life stories, how, you know, how you got where to you were at, and just— and we're going to kind of go through a lot of that. So yeah, I mean, there are. I'd love to have a book that had 365 things, but the book would have been huge, huge, because each page is committed to one thing. thing mm-hmm. Great dads tell their kids. But honestly, there may be more than 200. But these are the 200. I thought, man, you need to tell your kids these things. Yeah, this is important. This is easy, easy stuff. So we're just putting the ball on the tee. We're saying, come on, how hard is it? It's just sitting there. The ball is sitting there. Yeah, so just, we're going right it. into that right now. So, so well, why don't I guess you tell my, us. Well, before we do that, do you have a hero story? I, oh, I didn't pull that up. No. Oh, but okay. We did. Yeah, <laughs> we just go right into this. Okay, thing. so go ahead. So anyway, so Dale, I'm going to turn it over to you, and I'm going to let you do what you need to do. And, yeah, uh, let's rock and roll, baby. Before we get like going too far into you explaining stuff, why don't you first, uh, you know, just tell us why. You wrote this book, uh, Tell Them What Great Fathers Tell Their Sons and Daughters. Well, so the funny part is, in around 1997, I was a 32-year-old young man. I still had a head of hair. (laughs) Didn't shave it till 2000, so I was three years away from shaving my head. I had a three-year-old son, James. I had a one-year-old son, Darby, and my wife was pregnant with who who would become Colton. We didn't know what his name would be then, but Colton. And I wrote uh, a Word document, and I had about 73 things on that document that I was going to tell these boys. Mm. And I, I, as their dad, wanted to tell them at some point in their life. And they're like, 73 of these things. I lay, I saved it as tell him, because mm. I only have sons, and I knew that Colton was going to be a, a son as well. And so the things I want to tell him, tell James, tell Darby, tell Colton. And so that's why I wrote it. Uh, I wrote it down, saved it as a Word doc, hmm. and I filed it and kind of forgot about it. It's been fermenting for years. For, for years. Wow. Years. And now my sons are 27, 25, and 24, or 23, and they're full-blown men. One's married, one's engaged, and one is a, a fifth-year senior playing football at Linfield University. And these are great young men, and these are guys that I've practiced this on. The cool part about this book is this book has contributions from all three boys, all three boys throughout the yep. pages of the book. And we're going to talk about those. Okay, so I'll those, shut up those there. Those are and, good. Okay, I'll shut up and let you go. So that's why I wrote the book, man. These are things I want to tell my sons. Yeah, might be some tears shed in this interview. Oh, you're killing me. Yeah, I know. I was crying when I was reading it. Oh, geez, because so, you're, la- you're lame. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Men don't cry. No. No, so <laughs> me, I was reading through this book, and I got to say um, that I, I, I was pretty, I was pleasantly surprised that some of them like, hey, my dad's told me that. Uh, and then there's other things like, hey, my dad didn't tell me that. But then I think about, Hey, these are things that I've told my kids, and oh man, I really missed the mark on that. And I, and I think yeah. guys could really go through here and maybe beat themselves up, especially if your kids are older. But uh, like we've said many, many times, you you still have tomorrow uh, or or today. You don't know if you have tomorrow, but today you can do these things. And so um, don't beat yourself up too much on that. But Jim, I want to ask you, what was the number one thing you remember hearing from your dad? What he said to you that was like impactful, like a good thing that you take with you right now? The number one thing your dad would share with you? That is a tough question, because my dad, I remember when I was about 30 years old, so right around the time I wrote this book, 
my dad handed me a knife and said, here, love you. And, <laughs> and so that was like one of the first times I ever remember him saying that to me. So normally the things I remember were, you know, don't let your line slack when you're fishing. <laughs> don't move. The ducks are coming. Shoot, shoot, shoot. You know, so uh, my dad did not affirm a lot. A lot of he was very driven. He drove me and pushed me. Uh, he coached me all the way through uh, high school. He's the only other guy. He's the only guy in every football picture through high school. And so he was there and very, very engaged in my life. But he really didn't share things with me. So the most impactful, like awesome thing was he said, I love you. Simply Well, that, that was at 32 years old. Yeah. But the funny part now is I've told my kids yeah. I love them until they're bored by it, which they all mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. And they have pushed my dad to say I love you back to them. Mm-hmm. And that in turn has cycled back to me. And so my dad and I talk on the phone at least once a week. He's a very, very engaged father, always has been, great father. And so we've been saying I love you to each other on the phone on a regular basis. So it's really come full circle. And so that's been really fun. But I did not get that growing up. All my affirmation verbally was for my mother Mm. growing up. My dad was engaged and and there. And my dad's a very social guy. He's a very talkative guy. But he just never said those things. So would you say that's the number one thing you wish you heard from him? I wish I heard that more. I wish I heard uh, I'm proud of you more. You know, my wife and I were uh, hanging out the other day at a tailgate party because our kid plays football, our youngest. And we're talking to these parents about their sons. And across the board, none of these young men work. These are 23-year-old men. None of them work. Their parents, their parents pay 100% of their college funds. And they say, well, football and school is your job. Well, I, we didn't say that to our son. We said, listen, <laughs> you're gonna work. if you have a car, you're going to pay for the car. You're going to pay for your insurance. You're, you know, you're going to do these things. Now, we told the, our sons in college, we will pay for your cell phone. So we have done that. But they've been on their own, and, and their grandparents help with their education, and we help with their education, and then they help themselves their education. But Colton, I'm so proud of him. He has been a Young Life volunteer all the way through college. He worked a, a solid job all the way through college. Uh, most recently, he was at Les Schwab. Now he's a technician for a water park where he used to be the shift supervising lifeguard, where he oversaw all the lifeguards. Uh, he's just a phenomenal young man. Mm-hmm. He's a 3.5 or something student at Linfield University where he plays sports. In high school, he played three sports all four years of high school. He was only one out of six people in a school of 2,000 who did it. And my wife and I just the other day said, you know, son, we're just really proud of you. You are an amazing man. I mean, when I compare you to the guys in your team, you are head and shoulders above these guys. And, of course, he downplayed it. But we we're just, I want to be very clear to say, man, I'm really proud of you. Mm-hmm. To me, I would rather have my dad tell me he's proud of me than he loves me. If I'm yeah. really honest, yeah, I would rather have my dad say, I am really proud of you. And he did that. It was usually attached to sports. You know, I, I win a game or I do that. He would say, I'm proud of you. It was always attached to that. And I think when a father says he's proud of his son or daughter, I think it's usually attached to something right, right decisions. I don't think, personally, that daughters, you could probably speak to this more than me, I don't think daughters need to hear, I'm proud of you, like boys do. Yeah, I, I have think daughters need to hear, I love you, and I'm and you're beautiful. Yeah, but, I think you're right with that, I love you and you're beautiful, but I think there is a, um, they want to know that their dad approves of them, and mm-hmm, that he's mm-hmm. proud of them too, so. Yeah, I hear you. I, I have one in particular that, like, to hear I'm proud of you, I think is huge for her, so Yeah. Or, yeah. or to say, uh, you're good enough. It's mm-hmm. it's a different thing, yeah, right? Yeah, you're good enough probably is a better word for it. I just wish more dads... So so you, you made a comment earlier, and I just want to... Let me go back to it. You said, you know, some of you, if you haven't said this, your kids are out of the house. You know, the book is really written. My target man is a man who has children 4 to 14, mm-hmm. 4 to 17, right in that range, 4 through high school, that range. But I'm using this with my granddaughter. Right. And I think it's never too late to go back and to share these things with your children. A lot of these 200 statements are stories. Tell them about how you met their mother. Tell them about your your wedding day. You know, things like this. And I think those are really important to carry on the stories of your family and the lore of your family. Like I have my great-great-grandpa who came over here on a Portuguese whaling boat, got stuck in Alaska in an ice 
drift and had to burn basically burn the ship for firewood end up in san francisco years later he 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 settled in the central valley where he was gored to death by a pet bull those are great stories <laughs> they gotta you know hear I mean? that they gotta no hear my it. grandparents had to elope because he was full-blooded portuguese and she was full-blooded italian and the portuguese didn't want to mix with the italian and to the day my grandpa died he talked me how he didn't believe that people of different ethnicities should be married and i go well what about you and grandma and he was like oh and, you know and so they were married 64 years it was a love story but but you have this different ethnicities coming together and that's a great story how they had to elope to reno because nobody accepted her or hit her into the family, and it's just a beautiful story, and that's a story worth passing on, right? So, Right, yeah. Now, recently, we went to Reno to visit some of my wife's family she had never met, and you guys have similar stories with your family, whereas hers also came from the Azor Islands. Yep, that's and right. They, and they settled in Reno, and they built all these homes around each other by the fairgrounds. They had some dealings with the, the mob, I guess, with some casinos. Uh-huh. <laughs> but there's some great stories, and... And, and we realize that we got to hand those down to our kids. They got to know this stuff. And, and we're going through stuff where family has passed away. And my wife and I said this to each other. We realize that when we go, the chances of the rest of them down the line caring or sharing this is probably nil. And so Absolutely. we got to keep it alive. Well, like, you know, my kids know that we're related to Abraham Lincoln, so that's a cool story. That's why you guys are so handsome. Yeah, that's exactly... Well, he was known as the ugliest president <laughs> to ever hold office, so... Anyway, but the funny part is, I just did some more research on my family, and I realized that one of my Scottish relatives, my mother's side, was part of the, um, a Jacobite rebellion. I won't go into that. He, he they, The Scots lost. He was thrown on a ship. A lot of these guys were killed and thrown in prison, but they took some of them, and they went, we're going to ship you out of the country... So they shipped him to America. His name was David Hume. You can Google him. Where on the ship, the captain of the ship was so impressed by him, he wrote, he, he, when they got to America, he connected him with one of his good friends, Martha. They sent this guy, David Hume, a relative of mine, to surveying school, where he learned to be a surveyor, and he taught Martha's husband, George Washington, how to survey. Mm. <laughs> I mean, those are great stories. That's awesome. You know what I mean? So so passing on those traditions, I think, is really important. Things we need to tell our kids. Yeah. So, well, one of the, thing, the days in here um, you put down on day three, to tell them about a scar and how you got it. And so mm-hmm. my question, why, why, is that, why is that important to you? Well, first of all, I think a scar, a tattoo, these are all visible signs of something that happened in your life, Right. I don't have any tattoos. I know you have a couple tattoos, but I think tattoos tell a story. Mm-hmm. Why did I get this tattoo? What, what's the purpose? How did it, how did I feel when I got it? You know, this scar, I've got a giant scar on my knee. That scar really represents me coming to Christ and a near-death experience where I was in the ICU for three days blind because I was overdosed by the anesthesiologist. And in the ICU as a 19-year-old, God called me into full-time ministry as a Christian who was not even walking with Jesus, right? And so that's a great story. Or I've got a scar on my side where I had a big, giant birthmark that was the size of a giant, ugly eyebrow. It looked like a giant eyebrow, and I had it removed my sophomore year of college. You know, so there's a huge scar on my side. You know, whatever I can, or I can say, oh, this scar here, this is, you know, Paige Con broke my heart. You know, type of thing. <laughs> you know, and so, but these scars tell stories, and I and I think it's I think the more that we as men, because men are visual right? So we as men, as we pass these stories on to our sons and daughters, it gives them a visual illustration of our life, especially our sons, because the sons are, we're passing on a story or a visual object, a visual narrative to a a son, let's say, who is a visually oriented human already. It just helps pass that tradition on, where our daughters are verbally oriented, right? Mm -hmm. So we can use the words to articulate our thoughts, where the boys, uh, they remember much more when they see something or they can see the narrative in their brain unfolding. Right. No, that's good. Um, You put on uh, day five here that you want to do something right now to tell them. So explain that one. Yeah, so day five. So let me just say this real quick, Dale, because I think this is really important for the book. The book, each page is a day, and there are 200 days, and each day has a couple things. So day five says, tell them that you want to do something together right now. And then there's a picture on that 
page and the picture happens to be a little girl, maybe a 10-year-old girl playing football, throwing a football. The implication is her dad's on the other side. And then there's a Bible verse. And on day five, the Bible verse is James 4, 8a, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So this is this this is on here so that men will reflect on this verse that it just as God draws near to us, that we should draw near to our children. And then each day has meditation questions that a man can actually reflect on with their daughter or son or just alone. And on this one, it says uh, the meditations are ask your son or daughter what he or she would like to do, then do it. And the second one is reflect on how your father's modeling this area, good or bad, affects who you are today. So how did my dad model this? Well, my dad was outstanding at modeling this. And then the third question is, will you change or emulate? What will you change or emulate with your children? So getting these guys to really sit down for five or 10 minutes and really reflect on this, Mm -hmm. I think is very, very powerful. So for me, I think this is brutally, vitally important for men to draw near to their kids, to play basketball with them, shoot hoops with them, go to their events, to be engaged in their lives, to find something they love to do and do that with their children. And so my dad actually wrote uh, a piece in this book and how proud he was. My dad's not what I would call a spiritual man, but my dad was wrote about how proud he was of me for passing on the hunting tradition to my kids because my dad, that's how he connected with us. He connected with us through the outdoors and through hunting and through fishing. And so to see that go on to my children really blesses him. And so that's what we're talking about, drawing near to your children. And I, and you don't draw near to your children watching television or you know sitting around watching TV. <laughs> you know, b- right. Video games? Video games? I'm not a video game guy. But video games, yeah, that's a great way to draw near to your kids, right? You're down there together doing something together. You know, what can you do together? You know, I thought it was cool, speaking of your dad, he actually put in there that he sees that you have developed a strong Christian family, and to him that was something that really stuck out to him. And uh, not that you were led by your dad to be a strong Christian man, but he sees that as a great attribute. Well, and I think that goes back to my grandparents who were devout, devout followers of Christ. I mean, they were church people every day of the week. They literally went to church every day of the week. And my grandpa was a general contractor who literally was responsible for remodeling the old mission in San Luis Obispo, which was made in 1772. So he was very, very involved. Very, very devout. My grandparents were very, very devout. And so my dad walked away from that inadvertently and is kind of journeying back to that. Mm -hmm. When I gave my life to Christ and I graduated from an elite, prestigious university in California and went into full-time ministry and had no money, my dad just could not comprehend that. He actually kicked me out of the house. I moved back from college, and a month later, he kicked me out, and I was on my own Mm -hmm. uh, because he he said, uh, this is a crutch get the hell out of my house type of thing. And so, but over the course of 35 years now, he's seeing that this is not a crutch, this is not a fad, this is not a something that's fake, this is real. And they've seen the fruit of it in my life and how I love my parents and honor my children and try to honor the things my dad has established as traditions in our family, so. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I you know, I... There's, I picked some things out from each one of your kids and your mom that wrote in here. Uh-huh. And, and one of them, and I know, I've kind of watched your boys' journey growing up. Totally. <laughs> and uh, I know you have not been easy on them. Uh, and your oldest one put on there, the thing that really stood out to him was, finish what you start. And, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure there's times where they've wanted to quit, but you haven't allowed them. But now, where they're at now... That has uh, been huge for them. So, can you speak to that on James? Well, I yeah. So yeah, I'm just really proud of my son James. That kid had a rough run in college. <laughs> he when he left the house for college, he said, "Hey, I, this is my time. I've lived under your roof, but these four years are my time." And he did. He had the rumspucka of rumspuckas. I mean, <laughs> he lived it up. He produced a child from it. <laughs> But, you know, he's super engaged in her life. He sees her at, at least twice a month and usually for one week at a time during the month. And uh, he has overcome a lot of adversity that he created for himself, a very poor driving record because he likes to go fast. 
And he's just really come around. He's got a great job at 27 years old, 26 years old. He bought his first house in Portland, Oregon, which is not cheap. Right. And uh, he's he's just doing well. And when I say Portland, I just want to say this. He lives in Portland, but he is not Portland. He is very country <laughs> boyish. He's like a totally outcast of Portland, but yeah. he is a he's a great young man. He's got a beautiful uh gal he's engaged to and uh you know, he's just and I, you you never think about these things. You know, Colton is graduating college and Colton hated college. He's a brilliant young man. He's very, very smart. He hates it so much he's going in for the fifth year. Well, because it's about football for him. <laughs> yeah. but, but he 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 hated college. He was like me. I hated college. But he realized it's a necessary thing he has to go through uh, to, to establish himself. But they, those kids have just been beat into them. You will not quit. Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to quit and you, you develop the habit of quitting, what's going to happen when your marriage struggles? Mm. What's going to happen when you have a kid that goes wayward? What's going to happen when you have a, a job you don't like? Yeah. You know, on and on and on and on, it's about endurance and attrition and grit. And quite frankly, bro, we live in a country of weak, soft males that, that don't understand this concept of commitment. Life is hard. Marriage is hard. Jobs are hard. I mean, things happen. People are dying all around us, you know, and, and it's if you don't have grit, if you don't have this characteristic of endurance that Jesus possessed on the cross, you know, it says in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, um, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, this is a verse two and three, for, who, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scoring at shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. That's what Jesus did. He endured the cross. He endured. He he endured it. He he took the pain. He embraced the suck. He did all those things. And we as men have to do that. Oh, we good. have to do that. And so we've ingrained that into our kids. Listen, you will not quit. And now as an adult, he goes, man, I'm glad my dad taught me that. Well, you know what's funny, bro? Uh, on Father's Day this year, so May. All the kids came together. We all went 3D archery shooting together, which is cool. Mm-hmm. And then we had uh, two other guys showed up. A kid, two kids I coached in football randomly that were, that were there. So there were five, six of us shooting archery together. Went back to the house and I made uh, Axis deer shank, chicken abodaba. I think I said that. No, adobada. I get confused. Adobe. Whatever it is, but it was delicious. Chicken adobe. And, um, and uh, Colton, my youngest, said, Dad, I just want to thank you. And I said, Well, for what? And he goes, you are hard on us, but we're not soft. Yeah. So many of our friends are soft. Thank you so much that you raise sons that aren't soft. And I thought, man, that's a great compliment. Now, now don't be wrong. I want them to be soft when it comes to compassion, when it comes to the weak, when it comes to raising their children, when it comes to being tender with their wife. There's a time for that. There's a time for gentleness, and there's a time for tenderness. I'm not talking about this redneck, screw you type of thing. I'm talking about being hard when it comes to commitment and hard when it comes to finishing and hard when it comes to persevering and hard when it comes to embracing these things in your life that don't go your way. I mean, you're really, you're great at that. You, you are, you're a finisher. You're an endurance guy. You're a perseverance guy. You just, you show up to work every day. You're hardly ever sick. So you get this. You get this. But most guys don't get this, right? And um, yeah, so so that was pretty cool, and my son thanked me for that. Well, and you you this whole talk you just now did, it just really reflects this letter you got from Darby, <laughs> <laughs> and I got to go axis deer hunting with you guys. Actually, you guys went axis deer hunting, and I sat on the beach. Um, and so, but I watched Darby take his work with him on vacation. Yeah, and he worked. He got up early, worked. He also got up early and ran. Because he was, yeah. he was, he was getting ready for a marathon or a half marathon. Or he was a, getting ready to run a marathon. A marathon. He's, so. He is a that kid is a mental machine. And he, what he's eating and putting in his body, he's just hardcore about it. And then he's out there willing to sit in the heat to try to kill something for multiple days on end. When really the beach was where it was happening for me. But uh, I watched him and I and I watched all that. But you said that whole you know finishing and being hardcore and all that stuff. But what he said in there really stuck out. Make one of the things that you taught him was make God the center of your life and every relationship. And so bringing that in, um, 
was pretty cool to me that like so for his marriage, his friendships and all that, that that really stuck out to him. Well, and it's really fun. He's he's a phenomenal human being. That oh, kid. He, he bought a house at 24. Now listen, when I say he bought a house, guys, I'm not saying, hey, I gave him a loan, I gave him a down payment. Nope. No, he did that. He found a USDA loan for a first-time home buyer. He bought a house in a rural area that was a built in 1892 or something that was refurbished. It's a nice little 1,500-square-foot home, and he did that himself. Him and his bride did that on their own. This kid is so strong. He's so tough. And you know, it's, and he's but he's so tender. He's so when I watch him interact with Libby, he just is so gentle to her. He's so he's the middle son, so he's my only introvert out of all five of us. He's the only <laughs> introvert. But you know, that trip with with Darby was interesting because that trip was not what we thought it would be. We thought it would be you know deer running up to us saying, "Put the arrow here," and it was tough for him. He got in that blind every day, and he was in that blind for a long time. In fact, a friend of ours who's a guide said, I can't believe how long you guys spent in the blind. And so he was there for an entire week, hours and hours and hours in the blind, and he shot a doe. You know what I mean? And so he yeah. he learned a real hard lesson that you can do all the work and still not have the fruit. And that's mm-hmm. life. You know, he trained and trained and trained and trained for elk archery season. Him and his buddy went out. They did get into a bull. His buddy shot the bull. Uh, the shot was not lethal. And so we never found the bull. The bull actually was seen later. It's alive and well. But but Darby, well, it's not well, but it's alive. Uh, Darby never fired a shot, never drew his bow back. And he worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and hunted and hunted and backpacked in and did all things. And, and he learned that you can still do all the work and not receive the fruit. Mm. And that is life. Yeah. Life is not fair. Life, there's no, you know, just because you show up doesn't mean you're going to have a working wage or doesn't mean you're going to, you know, people are going to step aside and let you move in. That's not how life works. And so that's, that's what we need to realize. I think that's one of your little things that you tell them in there, yeah. too, that life is not fair. Yeah. And more parents need to tell their kids life is not fair. Life is not fair. Yeah. It is not fair. It is not. Now, you can be fair as a human. You know, one of the qualities of manhood in my book that's coming out in June called Full Capacity Man, one of the qualities in there is the just man. We as men need to be just and fair. But life isn't. Life is harsh and brutal. Life is the opposite of just and fair. And so if we don't equip our kids for that, they're going to experience freaking sticker shock <laughs> when they walk out of the house. They're going to experience culture shock right. when things don't go their way. And I, I've always, we try to create an environment in our home. And when I was coaching football, we try to create a high stress environment so that they experience, so when they get to the game, everything is like, whoa, this is easy. Yeah. You know what I mean? ready for this. Yeah. Well, they do that in the military when they train them, right? They're, they're yeah. like shooting rounds over when they're crawling on the ground and stuff's blowing up around and all that stuff. So you've got to be ready for go, go time. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, I remember with Colton, there was a time where he played football, and, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there wasn't there a time when he was playing football in college that he was just like, you know, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Yeah, he his junior year, he was like, you know, Colton's a four-year four year starter as a punter. Yeah. And he's a PAT holder, and he's it's done some like kicking. it was hard for him. No, but he just... And it, he was putting in way less time than the normal guys because they have to go to meetings and watch films and do all this. But he just doesn't like college. He just doesn't enjoy it. Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to quit. And he, um, he's pushed through. He actually recently sent me a note, me and my wife, Shanna, saying thank you for pushing me. Actually, yeah. no, hold on. It's right here. <laughs> in, my, in, my, in my office is a football. If you, when you see me on videos, you'll see a white football behind me. It's a Linfield Wildcats football. football. And wow. Colton gave my wife and I this when he graduated, and it says, Mom and Dad, I want to say thank you. Thank you for supporting me. When I changed schools at the last minute, when I chose to play college, when I chose to play college football, when I chose to stay an extra year, when I almost chose to drop out. Mm. So he sent this to us. He said, I love you. You'd let you never. Want me to read it? <laughs> Y'all never left my side. <laughs> and, and so Colton had said, a winner never quits and a quitter never wins. And that's something you've said. I've heard you say that a thousand times as well uh, over the years that we've been together. And that really stuck with them. And that football says it right there. So that's pretty awesome. When I was in middle school, I was getting, my parents were going through divorce. I think I was in seventh grade. 
and I was getting ready to go out on the basketball Your court. Your 13th birthday party. Yeah, it was my 13th birthday. And I was getting ready to go out on the basketball court, and at Laguna Middle School, there's a... <laughs> You know, this is like the late 70s, right? And there's this little white card. It's probably a five-by-seven card. And typed on the card in big black letters or printed or Xeroxed or whatever it was, it just said, a winner never quits and a quitter never wins. And I have never forgot that. And for me, uh, when I default, I will default to hanging in there after maybe longer than I should have, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I believe that, yes, you do beat the dead horse, because even Jesus might be able to resurrect it. Beat the damn dead horse. And so people say, don't beat the dead horse. Don't beat a dead horse. I'm like, no, I disagree with that. I think you need to beat the dead horse. That yeah. thing could be sleeping. It could need to be resurrected. You never know what God can do, uh, but we just can't give up. I, I was telling a story. I was I prayed for a guy about a month ago who's really struggling in his marriage. I mean, really struggling. Like, like his wife said, hey, at this point, if the marriage isn't fixed, I'm divorcing you. And it was a week after the date she gave him. Mm. So he's waiting for a call any day to divorce him. And I said, I want to tell you a story about a couple in a church I worked at in California. This couple ran the marriage ministry of my church. And they shared the story that they were getting divorced. They were in the office of the divorce attorney. That They were sitting across the table from each other. The only reason they were there were to sign the divorce papers. Okay, are you hearing me? This mm -hmm. marriage is over. Mm -hmm. And they're at the table signing divorce papers, and her foot accidentally hit his foot because they're sitting across from each other. And he kind of rubbed her foot. Just kind of, once she touched him, he kind of gave her a little rub. And they take their shoes off, and they start playing footsies under the table at the divorce paper signing. And... They fell in love while signing divorce papers all over again. God redeemed the marriage in the 11th hour, and they were the marriage mentors in our church. Wow. And so all I'm saying is you never know when God is going to do a miracle. Mm -hmm. But we cannot give up. We cannot give up. We just throw in the towel too soon. So that's that's, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. What is, isn't that a great story of marriage redemption? That is an awesome redemption? story, man. And that, that whole never quitting thing, I think, ties really good into day number 102 that you say— Tell them that people are watching. Well, you and I had a discussion about a month ago where you said, hey, I ran into a guy yeah. who's struggling a little bit with our ministry. And I said, well, why? He said, well, he was on a date night with his wife, <laughs> and you were on a date night with your wife, and this guy doesn't know who I am. And Sh Shannon and I were having, it was in the middle of COVID, and she was stressed out, and we, and we were, she was on a furlough. And we thought she was going to get fired, and we're having this big discussion about money and our income and our life. And we're, you know, I'm an Italian and I'm a Portuguese, so Portuguese guy. So we're, and she's a British, she's an English girl. So we are loud, and our marriage is loud. And we started getting into this discussion, and we didn't think it was loud. It was normal talk for us, <laughs> but it was. Loud. But I remember this couple looking at me with these fried egg guys next to me, and I told my wife, "Who are these people?" Why are they staring at us? Well, You're that guy, that guy is a guy who actually approached you later on and said, "Hey man, I man, I'm struggling. I saw Ramos in this restaurant arguing with his wife, right?" Well, I mean, welcome to the Ramos marriage, you know, type of thing. But uh it's really funny because people are watching you. Mm -hmm. And you never know, you never know how you're going to impact them positively or negatively. And so I was just reminded, you know, a couple months ago by you that 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 in that instance, I negatively affected somebody. Yeah, and so well, so people are always watching you. I have our uh, our logo sticker on the back of my car, so when I'm driving, I have to think about who I'm cutting off. And <laughs> oh, I don't do that. I don't have a sticker on the car, so I flip people off all the time. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wife is greater than well, kids so on your I've bumper. Got that, I've got that bumper sticker, <laughs> wife is greater than kids on the back of my car, and I'm always getting weird looks with that. Oh, yeah. But I mean, you know, I mean, here's this big guy in this big truck lifted up, you know, five-inch lift or whatever I have driving down the road with this, wife is greater than kids. You that, probably but, beat your children, don't you? It, it's just such a paradox <laughs> that people don't expect, they expect, you know, to see like F. Biden or Trump 2020 or something, but, I, you know, I don't, that stuff doesn't. I don't care about that stuff. That's funny. And so, but I do care about my wife and my kids. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, too funny. Well, I love this, um, and I love the fact that you're you're still you're still Jimmy to your mom, and when oh, she yeah. refers to you, it's Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. 
And uh, so you're still like that little boy to her, and and she just loves you dearly. And she put on there that she just loves that you help your kids as friends, and and you've taught them to eat what you kill and never hunt alone. <laughs> Those are important things, and you've taught them to honor women. And also, I'm going to throw these all out there and then let you un- unpack or whatever, but never become entitled and live a godly life. These are things that your mom is like looking at going, these are cool things. Um, but I know that you do, uh, with your kids, you've opened your door up to so that they can feel free and safe to say, hey, my buddy's got a problem. Dad, can you help him? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've had, we had uh, at least two kids live at our house throughout high school. Mm-hmm. And then recently we had the young man yeah. who I've talked about often live with us for a year. And, uh, you know, I've got this one young man, Felix, who doesn't have a dad really, who's one of my, my oldest son's best friends. And I just call him my, my second son. He's like a second son to me. He, he goes, and you know if, if you're a son to me because you get invited hunting. We yeah. don't let people hunt with us. It's our yeah. crew. Yeah. And he's a part of our crew. And so we do that. And I think that's really important. I, and I think that... Um, we as fathers need to be willing to take people in. You've done that with Noah, adopted your nephew, who's now your son. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us as men to pull people in uh, to that realm. And I think, yeah, we already talked about the entitled thing. That should never exist. It should not be a part of good fathering. And then the other thing is we need to honor women. I wish I had done that better and modeled that better mm-hmm. with their mother. That's the thing I regret the most in my marriage is the not whole framing. framing my wife well, yeah. but I've been doing that better now. But I think that that's important is that we open the door for women. We let women go through first. We don't do it because they're weaker. We do that to honor them. And so it's important. And my mom tells the story of how the kids in their little wouldn't walk in the door until she walked in. Yeah. So that's important. We walked out of an appointment yesterday, Noah and I, and he's like, you know, an eight-year-old boy yeah. just he just ran out. This lady opens the door and he runs out the door, and I'm like, "Oh, failure!" And and so I had her come in. I went out, son, stop. Let's stop right now. And I took him aside and I said, "When a lady comes to a door, we get the door for her." Yeah. Okay, Dad. <laughs> well, and we live in a world where guys are afraid to do that because of the mixed reactions of women. And I'll be honest, with you bro, I've never ever had a woman not thank me for opening the door for them. They, mm-hmm. the, the, the image that we get out there from the media and from these big cities is ludicrous, it's insane, it's ridiculous, it's fake, it's not real. So, and I have had a couple times where women have said, so why are you doing that? I go, I want to honor you. And they go, oh, well, let me open the door for you. So it's like it's a two-door. <laughs> so sometimes I've had a woman open the door for me, and I'm like, well, thank you. That's okay. But I mean, they never have rejected that. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Because I'm not yeah. doing it in a spirit of intimidation or in a spirit of arrogance or superiority, you know, or um, uh, uh, misogynism. You know, I'm doing it in an attitude of humility and honor. And everyone wants to be honored. Right. And I think women are made to be honored. And so, of course, they're going to be gracious unless they've been deeply wounded and polluted by the world in which we live. Yeah. But if we raise our boys to honor them. It just changes. Well, and let's talk about this conversely. We need to raise our daughters to settle for nothing less but to honor, be honored. Mm -hmm. That our daughters need to realize that they are worthy, that they are good enough, that they that they possess that, you know, like I tell my granddaughter, I just call her, I don't I don't know what her first name is. I just call her the princess. I mean she's the princess because I want her to realize that she is worthy of honor. And because she's worthy and because she's beautiful and because she's good enough, she can wait until she's married to have sex. She doesn't have to build her identity on another man. Does that make sense? And yes. so that's it. So it's important for us not only to teach our sons to honor women, but to teach our women to honor themselves, that they're worthy of that. You know, a boy honks for a date outside, honks on the horn. Hell no. <laughs> you just got an invitation, boy, to come to the door and knock now. My daughter is not going out. You know or what I'm saying? fire back with the gun. I don't know. This whole gun <laughs> thing. I just read a book where a guy's not cleaning his gun. That's so cliche and no, stupid. I mean, honestly, if, if a, an Oregon, if a Western Oregon kid walked in, 
in our community to see a gun guy clean his gun on a date with his girlfriend, he's going to walk up and go, "That's a cool gun, exactly. man. Is that a Remington Model 72 yeah. yeah. a BDL? What exactly. is that?" You know, is you know, it, it's not going to scare the guy at all. It's yeah. going to be a conversation starter. Yeah. If that happens to a city boy, he's going to call the police. <laughs> so, you know, either way it's a backfire. It's yeah. not it's what's stupid, you know, you want to scare a guy on a date, you open the door when he knocks on the door for the date and you sit him down on the table and you have a one-on-one with him. Yeah. You don't hold the gun knife not sharpening passive, thing is stupid. Not the passive aggressive way. No, you just <laughs> deal with it. Like one guy, I wrote I just read a book from a guy and I can't remember what the book was now. I read so many darn books. And he actually grabbed the young man and took the boy. He said, Before you date my daughter, you and I are gonna go for a drive. He took the boy for a drive and talked to him about the daughter. Yeah, about how he was going to treat the daughter, and I thought that was outstanding. One one of them that I heard at a conference was the dad had taken the boys out to the shop that he had, and he had a baseball bat, and he explained how they needed to um, protect the daughter. Here's an umbrella. You make sure she doesn't get wet, and all this stuff. And and he just talked about honor and protecting her. Now, if you're going to commit to doing that, then I want you to sign this bat. So they signed the bat, and then when they got married, when he gave his daughter away, he met with the, the fiancé the night before, and they had a talk. And he presented this bat to him with all these names written on it. And these are the men who protected her for you. Powerful. Well, you know, it's funny. My son Darby, when he, he dated a young, when he was a junior, senior, he dated a Christian girl, wonderful Christian girl. And her dad, family, wonderful Christian family. And her dad, I'm so... At the time, I was taken back by this a little bit, but I'm like, what a good move. He, the dad made Darby fill out a written application to date his daughter, and once he turned that application in, the dad said, okay, great, now it's the oral interview. And so Darby had to go through this process, and I thought, at first I thought it was extreme, but I thought, you know what, good for him. He's got mm-hmm. two two princesses in the mm-hmm. home, beautiful daughters yeah. that he's protecting, yeah. and I, I honor and admire that greatly, so... Yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to take a turn here, and I'm going to ask you why this uh, day 128, what heaven will be like. Because, I mean, a lot of people don't even talk about it. They say, oh, yeah, when you die, you go to heaven if you love Jesus. But why, what will heaven look like? Yeah, I think that uh, I think that our lack of understanding and teaching in the church about heaven may be one of the greatest deceptions of the enemy. Mm. Because we have taught or we have these images from Sunday school of being fat little chubby babies floating on a cloud, playing a harp, and singing <laughs> to Jesus 24-7. To me, that's the definition of hell. If I'm being honest, uh, I don't want to wear a diaper. I'm probably going to be doing that in 30 years anyway. I don't want to be bare, buck, butt naked, basically floating on a cloud, playing a harp. I'm not a musically in- inclined guy. And honestly, I, I love worship, but I'm not gonna, I don't want to sing 24-7. The worship that they're talking about is the Greek word proskuneo, which has nothing to do with singing. It, it, it means to pay homage like a dog licking its master's feet. It's a word that Jesus used over and over again in John chapter 4, and it's the same word that's used uh, more than all 10 other words for worship in the Bible. So we have a wrong picture, but the biggest problem that we have with heaven is we think it's a pl- this place we float up to in the stars somewhere— and we, we are so far from the truth. The ultimate heaven, let's just talk about ultimate heaven. I don't want to talk about intermediate heaven because I have some very strong opinions on where people go when they die now. But ultimate heaven is the new earth. God is going to restore the earth we're on. So we're going to be able to run uh, and not get tired. We're going to mm-hmm. dive in the deepest. All of our greatest fears will be gone. So we'll dive in the deepest oceans with no fear of suffocate, you know, drowning. We'll be able to barefoot ski off of Mount Everest. We'll be able to see the world that has not been polluted by human hands. We'll be able to do things and see things and experience things. So if I can't get to Greece by the time I die, it doesn't matter. I'm going to go there in heaven when the earth is restored. Mm-hmm. This, th- this heaven that God is preparing for us is the coolest man paradise you could ever imagine and we have to let our kids know what that's going to look like and how beautiful that is i highly recommend anything written by randy alcorn he has a book called heaven that i've personally read about four times now it's it's a giant book Mm -hmm. but it's a great resource for you guys to understand heaven but we have to tell our kids 
this is what heaven's going to be like. Because, man, it it's so... Because I, I believe, as John Eldridge believes, that men are called into the wild. God made Adam in the wilderness. He put him in the garden. God made Eve in the garden mm. and ultimately kicked them out into the wilderness where she was insecure, right? And it's been that way ever since. But we have a deep desire to go into the wilderness. Mm-hmm. But fear prevents us from the wilderness. Time constraints prevent us from the wilderness. Money prevents us from getting the wilderness. But I believe heaven is an eternal, eternal exploration of this beautiful wilderness called the planet Earth with no fear of death, with no pain, with no suffering, just pure exhilaration of being in the presence of God and those who we love who have loved Jesus and to spend eternity on this earth learning about God and unfolding his beautiful creation. It's just unbelievable. It's manscape paradise. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. It's yeah. a man paradise. So <laughs> we just need to tell our kids what it really is going to be like. No, that's so, so good, man. Uh, I really appreciate this, and this is, I'm a lot like this too. And one day 139, you say, love the unlovable. And uh, really, we go to church, and we hang out with a lot of people we'd never hang out with, but we're called to love the unlovable, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I love the quote by Mike Iaconelli, who's now, he passed away in 2003, but he started um, the uh, Wittenberg Door, I think, is a parody news, I I think he did something like that. He might have even been a part of the Babylon Bee. He's the founder of Youth Specialties. He's probably the father of modern vocational youth ministry, but he used to joke that he was a pastor of the slowest growing church in America, little church in Wairika that started with 35 and they got him down to 25. Yeah. And uh, But he said something that really impacted me. One of my favorite quotes about the church, in fact, I just used this quote with one of my sons the other day, that church is a place you go to hang out with people you don't like. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that, that it's so true, that the church is the place we go to be around people we would never associate with. My friend group now is nothing like the friend group I would have had before Christ. <laughs> right. And, and what we need to realize is everywhere we go, we live in a broken world, and people are broken, right? Mm-hmm. I'm really excited that next week we're going to have Wes Stafford on our show, who's the pe- president emeritus of Compassion International. He wrote a book called Just a Minute, and he talks about Anytime we're in the presence of children, to see that as a divine appointment. And man, that has just deeply impacted me. I mean, I mean, actually practically impacted me. And I'm gonna share a lot about the impact that has had on me personally when we have Wes on the show. But those little ones who can't defend themselves, we have to bless them and bring them along. Those people in our church that are discouraged. Uh, we need to bless them and bring them along. You know, I just was, you know, I have this habit now of praying for my waitresses. And another a, a waitress recently, I asked her about how I could pray, and her co-waitress husband just died of a heart attack, mm-hmm. right? Just dropped dead at like in his mid-50s. And so uh, praying for them and, and just being able to pray for these these people, and whether they're my waitress or my barista or a little child, and to, to impact those people around us, that are broken and, and need the light of Jesus in their lives. I think that's really important. And we need to teach our kids to do the same. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, do you wish you would have started doing that when your kids were younger and it had been a habit all these years, opposed to starting now once they've pretty yeah, much Yeah, because I've got up? one of my sons says, Dad, that makes me feel real uncomfortable. Because you would make them feel uncomfortable. Yeah, and so, um, <laughs> well, I, the cool thing is my kids are starting to dapple in that a little bit. So, you know, it's fun as they, and I've met probably, I've talked to probably at least 10 guys now. I know there's a guy listening to the podcast right now. I'm going to give him a shout out. Rob Hood. He's in, uh, I think, Missouri, I think. And uh, he's doing this now with his waitresses too. And so there are guys all around the country now who are praying for their waitresses and saying, I'm praying for you. And so I think that's one step forward uh, in sharing our faith with people because uh, people are broken and we live in a broken world, especially this in this time in, of such a divisive nation and and a lot of different viewpoints on how to handle COVID and, and this type of thing. I think we can be a blessing to those people around us. Absolutely. I, I really, uh, this one, man, I love this. I wouldn't be the guy that I am today if I hadn't started living by this, but accept criticism this is day 187. Accept criticism even when it hurts. Yeah, buddy. I would say um, 
Yeah, I'm, I've been your greatest blessing there, huh? <laughs> You're welcome. Thank so you. I, I would say, uh, I would say, I, I wish I could change that. But when you're talking to children, you really need to leave it a little bit watered down. I would say beg for criticism. Beg the people who have your back to criticize you. Beg them. Beg them. Because if I have people in my life who want me to win, and our wives do it naturally. So you don't have to beg your wife. <laughs> no. But, but, but it's just a gift God has given them, right? But, but those guys who have your back... Beg them, remind them if there's anything in me. So I want people who want me to win to have my blind. You know, when I was in high school, I was a, a junior, and we were playing a school that we hated. I hate these guys. I won't mention their name, but we hated these guys. And they had three <laughs> D linemen, or three offensive linemen that went D1 football. They were giants. And they had this little running back who went D1, run, uh, D1 also, who was a great running back, a little short guy. And they would run this sweep where they'd pull the two guards, they'd pull the strong side tackle, they'd pulled everybody, and they would just run this thing. And you couldn't see this little back. He was so small, and these guys were giant, right? One went to Berkeley, one went to Stanford. I think the other one went to Cal Poly. But, but I'm try- I, I finally got a, a line on this kid, and I'm going to pound. I mean, I was on a beeline. I was going to rock his freaking world because I hated this school. Anyway, next thing I know, I'm staring up at the stars. And the coach for their team was screaming at me. He had this girl voice. We got you, Ramos. We got you. He's screaming in his little girl voice. And then the guy that knocked me down, his name was Kurt Stone. And and I remember in number 73, giant. And he's staring over me. And he's like, and I remember this deep voice. He goes, man, you all right, man? And what happened was in football, they tell you to keep your head on a swivel. Because there are, there's a small little area kind of upper and to at a 45-degree angle on each side of the helmet that you can't see out of. And if you don't keep your head on a swivel, you can be snot-bubbled. And Kurt Stone, this guy from Atascular High School, well, there I said the name, snot-bubbled me. <laughs> snot-bubbled me. And, and in life, we need men who are willing to criticize us so that we don't get snot-bubbled. So it's not good enough to accept criticism. We really need to beg for it. Right. We need those guys who have our back. If you know, if they're you know, the, uh, David begged God in Psalm one thirty nine, test me and try me and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me into life everlasting. And so that's what we need to do with our with our bros. We need to say, man, please, please, mm-hmm. please, if there's anything in me, please let me know. There, I got two more, and then we'll call it okay good here. This one is 191, and it's to serve Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you'd think that'd be a no-brainer, right? Uh, but uh, I, I think, here's the problem, bro. We, My wife and I were just talking about this last night. We have a family member who says they're a Christian. And I'm like, I told my wife, I don't think they're a Christian. But we live in a world that says, and we've been, t- we've been deceived by spiritual leaders to say, if you just pray this prayer, you're a Christian. Mm-hmm. If you just cognitively assent, if you cognitively agree that Jesus is Lord, you're a Christian. And the Bible simply does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, if you confess your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in the heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. There is an act of ruthless trust involved in this to be Mm -hmm. saved. And so... It's really important. And so for me, I judge somebody's faith on their fruit. I don't judge their faith on whether or not they say they're a Christian, because most people who say that probably aren't. Mm -hmm. I look at their faith and I say, are they, I have a walking acrostic, W-A-L-K-I-N-G. Are they worshiping God on a regular basis? Are they approaching God daily in prayer? Are they loving other believers in regular Christian fellowship? Are they knowing the Word of God? Are they seeking to know, K, the Word of God? Are they I investing in the kingdom of God? Are they N nurturing other believers along in the faith or non-believers? Mm-hmm. And G, have they given their life to the gospel in service? And in John chapter 13, verse 15, Jesus says, I have given you an example to follow. What was that example? He washed the feet of his disciples, including Judas. Mm-hmm. Right? So if we are not willing to put on the servant's towel, I th- I find it very difficult to believe that that person is serving Jesus, because serving Jesus literally means we are serving others. We are loving God, we are loving others, and we have to teach our children that 
being a Christian is different than being a follower or a servant of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Uh, uh, to me, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to me. Well, you're a tr- your family, you're, you're, you're a tremendous service. <laughs> servant, so is your wife and your kids. So, <laughs> Yeah. But that's important. It's not enough to say... Now, don't be wrong. All five of our... All five of our sons. All three of our sons, when they were five and a half years old, we took them to a restaurant and I led them to Jesus. And when they were 13, I think Colton was 12, we baptized them. Mm-hmm. Colton came back to us when he was like 17 and said, I don't remember that day. Will you do it again? So we took him <laughs> to the restaurant and led him to Christ, you know, type of, yeah. just so he would remember the experience. Yeah. And so that's great that we did that, but it's not good enough mm-hmm. because at some point they've got to decide to follow Jesus when they have enough intellectual intelligence to, to grasp what it means to be a fo- Christ follower. Yeah, that is so good. So I'm going to go on to the next, the last one here that really stuck out to me. And that is 197, and that is do not fear death. Yeah, dude. That Seriously, I had a guy just blowing me up the other day, just yesterday, about you know vaccine or no vaccine. And without going into detail, because I don't want to get into <laughs> something like that, but I'll just say this. I do not fear death. I actually hope for it, because I know what heaven is going to be like. I do not fear persecution. I hope for it, Right. And, and if guys are really going to break this down, there is a tremendous fear of death. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we break it down and really strip it down, and, and let's go beyond this whole, oh, I'm afraid of getting people I love sick, or I'm afraid of this. If There is no fear in death. Mm-hmm. I, I Don't get me wrong. I do have a fear of how I go out. I just hope I don't get maimed and... You know, and I have dogs licking my guts off the street. You know, I'm beating the crows off my decaying body with my intestines, you know, Braveheart style. You know, I hope that doesn't happen. There is a little bit of how I'm going to go out, but I'm not afraid of going out. I can say that with all integrity. I'm just not afraid of going out. And I think that men need to address this concept of death. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 9.27 says it's given for every man to live once, then judgment. So if I am comfortable with my judgment and if I'm excited about my heaven... I should be okay with my death. I should be willing to accept it with joy. I want to. I want to live my life strong, and buddy, buddy, I want to die well. I want to die well. I want to love my wife till the day I breathe my last. I want my kids to be at my side. You know, I want to go out well. I want to go out with an exclamation mark. And I and and if I fear death, I'm afraid I'll go out with a whimper or with mm-hmm. a moan or with a whine you know, a crying for my mommy, sucking my thumb. You know, I don't want to go out that way. I want to go out strong, and I want to die well. We don't talk about dying well anymore. Mm-hmm. And and I don't think we can die well unless we've, we've realized that death is okay, and we're all going to do it once. And for those who don't know Jesus, they're going to do it twice. Yeah. Right? And yeah. so um, we, we just need to teach our kids. Now, that doesn't, that's not a license to be stupid, to right. go do stupid things, Right. right. It's just saying, like, I'm going to live my life to the fullest. I'm going to try to live every day. You know, Tony Campolo once said, instead of praying, if I die before I wake, many of us should be praying, if I wake before I die. Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks to the man who's afraid to live because he's afraid of, of dying. And so... That's good, man. We just can't be afraid of that. Yeah. So uh, that's all I got for you uh, on this episode. Well, hey, I appreciate that. So how can guys get the book, man? <laughs> yeah, guys. Yeah, exactly. Here's the next step, guys. Head on over to org. Pick up your free copy of Tell Them What Great Fathers Tell Their Sons and Daughters. I think you're going to love this. Uh, this is a great PDF. Um, so, yeah, I just can't say enough. You got kids in the home? You're kind of a fool not to come and get this free resource. Well, and here's it, it costs you an email. It costs you an email, and so, and I'm just being honest. We'll add you to our equipping blast, which is totally for you guys to grow in your relationship with Christ as a best version. If you don't like it, unsubscribe. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Don't be all weird about stuff. And I will say this: so many guys out there doing men's ministries have this free resource out there. I just want to speak to this real quick, bro. And it's a blog with a cover. It's stupid. They're 20 page, stupid, dumb, lame. <laughs> it's insulting to men to go, you are, this is your free book. This isn't a book. This is a blog. What we've put together is a 200-page workbook for men that is, we should be charging for it, but we aren't, because we want to put a resource that men will actually use to become better men and better fathers. And so that's why we did it. We think this is outstanding. And, and our digital marketing gal, Caitlin, 
uh, put this together. And she's it's amazing. She she actually did the heavy lifting uh, on the graphics, and it, I'm just really really proud of her work and proud of the the quality uh, resource we have for men. Yeah. Bottom line, guys, we want to equip you to be your best version so that you can lead your family and your community as well. Because once you do that, everybody honestly wins. Yep. And so that's our heart motivation. We don't do what we do for the money because otherwise we would go get a sweet corporate job with great bennies, but we don't because it's all kingdom-minded stuff here. So until next time, fill the wet sand on the arena floor, hear the deafening roar of the crowd, taste the sweetness of victory, smell the stench of battle, get in the game, get dirty, grind it out, and be a man. You've been listening to the Men in the Arena podcast. If you hunger to be your best version, then join thousands of men from around the world in our Men in the Arena forum on Facebook. This is the best place to have open discussions around the topic of biblical manhood. Make sure to explore our website at meninthearena.org, sign up for the weekly equipping blast, and take advantage of our many free resources designed to help you become your best version of a man. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, Everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men for from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.